There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born in great opportunity. Today we're, uh, we're joined by Sean McCleary, and we want to thank him for, for coming on board. For those that don't know, Sean's an associate in the Tampa office of Barlett Lowe. He works primarily, and I'm going to probably fuck this up, but doing commercial <laughs> litigation, representing plaintiffs like individuals and businesses who have been wronged, prosecuting claims, dealing with fraud, RICO-related stuff like that, and a whole other assortment of uh, tangential claims. But that's not where he began. Sean began at the University of Miami School of Law, just like John and I, so go Canes. We don't fault Sean for graduating from UF and undergrad. We'll just <laughs> ignore that fact. Um but Sean joined us today because he has an interesting perspective to share about a lot of different things, not the least of which is he began his career the first five or six years down in Miami, down in South Florida, like John and I, but he was on the opposite side of injury and wrongful death claims. He was doing the insurance defense stuff. And after doing that, he got some exposure to commercial, found himself a good mentor and a Boda member, and he ended up migrating up to Tampa and really kind of reshifting his focus as a professional to handle more of those claims as opposed to the BI and the liability stuff. So I'm sure I'm leaving out an awful lot. You're a father, you're a husband, and you're an overall good guy. But with that being said, Sean, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys, thank you for having me. You know, I've seen your podcast for, for some time, and, you know, you put out some great content, and you guys, you know, put out a lot of great content on LinkedIn otherwise. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think there's a perspective here that I've kind of picked up on when I'm, you know, working with, you know, claims examiners or TPAs on a commercial claim. And, and, you know, it is different because I remember, you know, starting out as a young associate, you know, you work with 20 different insurance carriers and you, you report to all these carriers and claims examiners. And, you know, they kind of have, you know, they may have a stable of 500 cases and it's all the same case. And so they kind of just get wedged into how they handle them. But with the commercial stuff, it kind of was almost like a curveball to them. And then sometimes it's frustrating and it makes the case so much more expensive to, to litigate on both sides. Um, but it, it, it's interesting, I think, the contrast and kind of your experience that you guys have had, you know, litigating just, you know, big, you know, high value cases, you know, high exposure cases, and then the same kind of pushback and delay and, and things that you deal with on, on what are obvious, quick, simple cases that you shouldn't have to spend two years litigating to get that $50,000, $50,000 settlement. So I think so that that there's I, probably some, yeah, no, oh, go on. Well, no, I was going to say that last comment you made is something I kind of want to drill down on, which is like, as a plaintiff's lawyer, we often find ourselves in cases be, being litigated when we thought pre-suit should have been sufficient, or now we're yeah. knee deep in litigation, gearing up for trial when we thought it should have been mediated and resolved. And so I want to just kind of hit the pause button and talk a little bit about the, I'm going to oversimplify it, just call it the claims handling process in a bodily injury or wrongful death claim. So, you know, John and I have talked at length about what it feels like to experience it representing the claimant. But can you shed a little bit light on just generally how the claims process works, the role of the insurer, the role of the defendant that's actually being sued, the role of the defense yeah. attorney? And then you mentioned TPA, third-party administrators, how they come in and out. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So when you have a commercial claim, not all of them are going to be covered by insurance coverage. So, you know, if you've got construction defects, a lot of times if you're representing, sometimes I'll represent a homeowner who's, you know, built a nice home. And unfortunately, you know, they hired the wrong contractor who's defrauded them, who's stolen money from them and the like. So, you know, in those types of instances, you know, insurance is going to play a smaller role because it's likely that you're not going to be able to find coverage. But where you have, you know, maybe just, for I had, it was a small case we had recently basically, you know, contractor hired to install flooring in a, in a showroom and just, you know, installed really crappy flooring was starting to bubble up all over the place. So we, you know, 
we've probably spent six months in pre-suit trying to say like, look, this is obviously the work was terrible. We haven't done anything. And, you know, our client hasn't stepped into the showroom since the flooring was installed. You know, this is clearly, you know, breaching the warranty. You guys need to come and fix this. So insurance carrier got involved, a couple early letters exchanged, you know, because, you know, sometimes you get very quick responses because it's, there's why, what are they going to fight for for two years when they know they're not only going to have an attorney's fees potentially hitting them because it's, you know, we got a contract in place that has an attorney's fees provision. Um, but in that particular instance, we got, a, you know, it was about six months of just kind of screwing around with the insurance carrier before that we just realized that we have to sue them. But then within, once you've got the subcontractors got, that got involved, their insurance carrier gets involved two months after that, you know, you have pretty much a settlement. And so sometimes it takes, the, you know, with commercial claims, it takes that lawsuit, it takes filing the actual suit to really put the fire under them. Uh, and I know you probably, you, you see the same thing with the PI stuff as well. But so that's kind of the, the most typical, you know, you oftentimes have issues where there's no coverage. Well, you do have coverage and you it's clearly, you know, something, maybe it's negligence against the contractor or something or, or something that would, you know, you'd have coverage for. You know, the, the, the issue that I often see with the claims examiners and insurance coming into place is that they just don't understand the claims and they don't see a, they don't see a wild factor in the claim. They just see, OK, you know, you yeah, my client, you know, damaged your home or, or whatever. The, I'll keep it simple. You know, contractor damages the neighbor's house, you know, negligence. There's no contract. So you got torque, but there's no, you're not going to have in those cases, you know, non-economic damages. You're not going to have, rarely going to have punitives at play. And so the claims examiners just see it as a straight accounting issue and say, okay, well, your max damage is 20,000. So if you're not going to take 10,000, we'll just let, we'll just let it litigate. And so you can ha oftentimes have trouble showing and highlighting for claims examiners how obvious their liability is for the insured because they don't see the, the fire of non-economics, those, those wild cards that they can't quantify. They can kind of guess you know, what their exposure might be. But without those, you know, wild factors, sometimes you see real, real deliberate foot dragging and delaying because they kind of have an idea of what the number is and they just, you know, rather play the numbers game. You know, that that's interesting you mentioned that because, um, you know, as I was sitting here, I'm thinking, you know, if there's a, a quantifiable amount of what you can get, you know, you know, say, for instance, if we had a claim where we can only bring a claim for medical bills, we know what the medical bills are. Yeah. Have their, their max day. They know that, you know, with the exception of potentially if you've got a fee provision or the award of costs, you know, you might yeah. have that. But, you know, so that does that change? Obviously, it changes settlement negotiations, but then does that change kind of your approach? Are you looking for to try to make claims for punitive, try to make get, get some of those? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure you are. But in terms to add mm -hmm. some of those wild or wow factors that you described to kind of help those cases. Yeah. So we had a case. It was a, it was a securities fraud case. And it was a it was a challenging case establishing liability against the one of the one of the defendants. So just to kind of simplify it, you know, there was there were district courts in other parts of the country that have said that this particular type of defendant just wouldn't be liable in a, in a securities fraud scheme. Um, just unfortunately, that was the case. There was just certain they had a certain certain uh, distance from the transaction that they could say, yeah, we didn't know anything about it. So in those types of cases. You know, you're tr you're trying to, you know, with securities fraud, you're trying to find the enablers, the facilitators, because typically fraudsters, they know the money has gone. And once they get it, it's gone. It's, it's very difficult to collect against them. So you always have to look for, well, who helped you get the money in the first place? Who, who facilitated, who enabled you? Um, and so with these types of cases, you have to really put, you have to be very aggressive and a lot of pressure because, you know, if you can, if you can loop in a financial institution 
into the lawsuit to show, hey, look, you're, you know, for instance, and I'll, I mean, give you more facts, for instance. So we had a we had a case where the client got sucked into this fraudulent investment scheme. And the way he the, the fraudsters were able to perpetuate the scheme was using a third party administrator, basically not not in the insurance context, but a third party administrator to kind of rubber stamp all the paperwork that they would send the investors. And so, you know, we focused on, hey, you had enough information that you knew that this that, you know, these fraudsters were running the scheme and you never notified the investors. And so while the law might have ultimately been on their side, we had to keep putting pressure, you know, move to add punitives so that they would ultimately come forward with what was, you know, a a substantial six figure settlement. But that was, you know, three, four years, years into the litigation before they finally decided to put you know, real dollars on paper. And so sometimes with these commercial claims, like, you know, with the PI stuff too, but with the commercial claims, you have to be pretty aggressive because of the fact that if you don't put a fire under them and you just let it sail its course, you know, you're not paying attention. You're not really making the other side put attention and put time into the case every week um, and litigate it. Then they'll just let it sail and, and, you know, let it go down the road. But that's the, those are the kind of things where you've got commercial claims and you have to be creative in your in your in your approach uh you need to kind of be slightly overly aggressive because you know look i you know with contingency you know look you have a a simple case you don't want to go before the judge 10 times before you get to trial that that doesn't help you to spend all this time and in in money in in the case if you don't have to if you can go before the court a couple times in litigating and then get for a jury i mean that's right that's the ideal situation and on on a on a bodily claim but the commercial stuff you know you're gonna have to not only affirmatively fight but you're gonna have to just assume that they're gonna fight twice as hard because they've got a you know a big institution and maybe they're not paying insurance rates maybe they're paying you know regular market rates and so you don't have the same you know insurance defense restrictions on you know the way cases get defended you know in the commercial side so you you do necessarily have to be sensitive to how the other side's going to approach the case as well and and the resources that they're willing to dump into it well i'm assuming let me just say because i mean over here taking notes. This is like my my university, Sean. You didn't even know that. But there's like so many points of interesting crossover that I want to know like where is the line where it becomes dissimilar. So from a case selection standpoint, as a commercial litigator, I'm assuming that one of the concerns you have, just like we would in the plaintiff personal injury realm, is whether or not there's going to be coverage and if so, if it's going to be adequate. But then it sounds like there's also that secondary similarity, which is like, okay, let's assume there's coverage. What kind of claims are we bringing here? Because if we're bringing fraud, we know there's going to be a fraud exception built into the insurance policy. And so now are we kind of in, in the situation where we're almost manufacturing, if not manifesting a situation where there won't be coverage to collect? Are those the kinds of things you're considering on the selection process up front? Not only on the selection process, but also on the claim selection process. So, you know, personally, I, I while I do have cases where, you know, the client, look, they've been defrauded. And, you know, there may be very little hope to recover against the, the fraudster, but the client says, look, I've been wronged and I want a judgment against them. I don't collect tomorrow, but look, I've got I've got decades before I can, you know, I can keep going after them. And so there's those cases where, you, you know, clients made the decision, I'll put the money into this, you getting me going after them, exposing the fraud, finding the judge, you know, getting me a judgment. And look, if we don't collect in a year, two years, it's fine because I've got I've got time to go after them. Um, so that's certainly, you have those types of cases. And then you've got cases where, look, these guys did something bad. They committed fraud against you, but do we want to, you know, do we want to drop the F word? Because that does affect coverage that will affect the ability to, you know, to, you know, to get third parties who could, who might actually pay for, for the liability. And so those are certainly things where, you know, look, there's fraud. Absolutely. But we can, we can come short of fraud but still potentially have coverage or we can, you know, still have the theme of fraud without, you know, 
overtly asserting it. So there are cases where, yeah, you might just want to go with a you know breach of contract claim, something simple, where you might have evidence and you might have a, an exception to the contract, a sort of fraud claim. Um, there's certainly going to be times where, hey, if we do this, you know, we got to make sure that the company itself is collectible because, you know, their insurance coverage, you know, you're just not going to have any. And right. so those are certainly things that, yeah, just like, you know, you would when you're evaluating a case like, hey, do I want to go sue this this business owner because, hey, he's got no policy in place and it looks like, you know, he barely has a can to piss in. So the question is, yeah, those those same considerations will definitely come up. Well, the, not only- for us, but for us, when we get to that situation, we see that there's no policy available on the other side. It's a deal breaker, like almost yep. universally true. And it has to be because our objective, we measure wins by collectability, how much yep. we actually net in our pockets favor. There's no such thing as paper justice for us. Whereas with you, at least it's conceivably true that the client could be, you know, adequately capitalized, like you just said, and tell you, look, I don't mind. I'm going to pay you anyway, work hourly, get that judgment. I'll deal with collecting later. So that's that's an interesting distinction. But it does sound like the fraud and the uh, the voiding coverage is, is definitely a similarity. Let me ask you this, because you know from your from the beginning of your career, plaintiff's personal injury attorneys, we don't get attorney's fees unless we find a way to create them, right? There's no contract provision that says, hey, prevailing party, automatic, you get you get attorney's fees from inception. So our number one tool to even make that a potential option is still contingent in the proposal for settlement, a, a creature of statute and rule under Florida law. Yeah. And Georgia law has the same stuff. So for you, though, in most of your cases in commercial dealings, are you seeing prevailing party attorney's fees provisions in almost every contract that that's there's a dispute over? So if there's if, if you know, if if anybody put more than eight dollars into the contract to prepare it, there should be an attorney's fees provision with most with most commercial contracts if you have a you know if you're if you're high you know any sizable contract there should be an attorney's fees provision assuming unless it's just a straight consumer transaction but if you're hiring a contractor to build a house for you you're hiring anybody to do anything significant improvements to your home uh, other than just delivering a refrigerator you know you want to have those protections as a consumer but also just as somebody who's you know even if you're not a consumer you know if you're the business owner you you want to have those protections and so you know most of my cases we either look for you know we look for it in the contract but we also look for a statutory basis because there could be a claim that could be brought where you have an, a prevailing party attorney's fees provision. For instance, we had a case where we, we took a case over from another firm. Um, they so so two two competing security companies. They both provided private security officers. So company two decided to rip off the trademark of company A, our client, by setting up all these fake website domains that just mimicked the name of our client. And so there were seven or eight claims that were brought against the defendant. And so when we took the case over, you know, we realized there's just too many claims. Like you don't need, you look, you're, you, you can just do one claim pretty much under the trademark law and you, you know, you can tag them for cyber squatting and then that'll give you your attorney's fees. That'll give you disgorgement. That'll give you everything. I think a lot of, this is just a separate point. I think a lot of issues, a lot of times commercial litigators, when they're figuring out how to best approach a case, they assert too many claims. And then they end up tripping themselves over because you, do, you don't want to assert a claim that you may not ultimately win on if it could confer a prevailing party status to the other side. And so sometimes when you've got, you know, especially in the commercial side, I've seen this all the time, you know, more is not always better. Like if you can prove it all and you, you look at the jury instructions and you look at the evidence before you file suit and you say, look, we can show we can prove our case under this. We can get attorney's fees. We can get costs. We can get whatever measure of damages don't bring the five other similar claims that That's only, fascinating. Per, you know, John, you know I'm sitting here thinking about it. Like, cause when <laughs> you and I are coming up, 
part of the value add, we hope at least, uh, if a client chooses our law firm, is that if we have to litigate, John and I and our team are creative and experienced enough to identify all of the conceivable causes of action because there's very little risk in over pleading yeah. and abandoning later. Whereas with you guys, you have to almost do that screening process before filing. Yeah. You don't so I'll give you yeah. So I'll give you a great example. So this case that we, that I was talking about, it was there were about seven or eight claims brought. There was the claim for you know the pr- primary claim, which was all you needed was the trademark infringement. But then they brought companion claims for f- violation of FDUPTA, Florida Deceptive Unfair you know Trade Practices Act, uh, misleading advertising, another statutory claim. Um, they brought. Um, maybe some other equitable claim. But the point was that there was three different claims under which attorney's fees could be had. And so what happens if you win one, but then you lose the other? Because they're not all the identical elements of proof and elements. Some were slightly different. And then once when we took the case over, we started looking at, well, what do you need to actually prove the misleading advertising and the FDUPTA? It wasn't as easy as the trademark claim. And in fact, it was harder such that we actually had to kind of abandon those claims but then we had to fight with the other side over, hey, does this confer you prevailing party for, for a status or does it confer us? Because we won on the trade on the main trademark claim. Now, we got we got lucky in that case because there was a great opinion by uh, Justice or uh, Judge Altman out of the Southern District that provided that case. Said, yeah, yeah, you look past the prevailing. You look past voluntary dismissals to determine prevailing party status. You know, look, they won on the main claim and got everything they wanted. So them just kind of dispensing with these unnecessary claims doesn't all of a sudden now flip the you know like flip it up kind of like get to the heart of the matter and let's not but but nevertheless there in, that was a fine line but there are instances where people will just assert five or six statutory claims i think they're covered and then they lose on a couple win on a couple and then the court's in the situation where well are you i mean you don't you're not going to get all your attorney's fees back i mean you may get those for prosecuting that but you're going to take a huge hit on all the fees that both of you incurred in fighting this other claim and so sometimes you know with with more claims is not, you know, not being better. You may end up getting hit on the attorney's fees if you ultimately do prevail. Well, John, gonna... John loves keeping track of his time and, and keeping a <laughs> uh, time record. So I can just imagine, yeah. well, John, you should do commercial lists so you can parse out which hours went to which claim, man. You'd be assured. Oh, yeah, you, you try not to do that because you want it to be inextricably intertwined. If you, if you do parse it out, you almost kind of shoot yourself in the foot. But it, it's kind of like a blessing and a curse because then it show, you show what you did for that particular claim and you can cut it away. If it goes south, but if it, if, it, if the court says, well, you know, you won generally, then you just say, oh, it was all inextricably intertwined. And then, right. but you can certainly lose on that argument as well. Uh, one of the questions I had just written down before coming in, because, you know, John and I, we, we like to pride ourselves on being jury whispers. I mean, I'm being sarcastic a little bit, but I mean, jury trials is, is what we're all about. If, if the other side gives us an opportunity to walk into court and impanel six people mm-hmm. and, and convince them that's what we want to do. That's, that's an upside. Yeah. But with you, I'm assuming a lot of the times there's like contractual waivers of jury trial provisions mm-hmm. and all of that. So that's a totally different territory for me. When I was a public defender, I was in the divisions where it was still jury trials. I didn't do juvenile with bench. So I have no experience with that. The closest I've ever gotten are Daubert hearings and summary judgment hearings. I guess summary judgment's closer. Can you talk a little bit about not just the differences between the two logistically, but strategically how you're going in all the way from opening statement, exhibits you're going to use, witnesses you're going to call, et cetera? So yeah, typically, you know, so with our practice, you know, we not only, you know, with, with the, you know, with your breach of contract claims, those are where you're typically going to run into the jury trial waivers and the like. We, you know, we also bring up a good deal of just general commercial claims. And so we do get a lot of claims where there's no jury trial. 
Um, we have a jury trial at the end of this month down in the Keys. Uh, we had a non-solicitation jury trial last year in Pinellas County. Um, just, you know, it was a business tour. And I think there actually might have been a jury trial waiver in that contract, but we still did a jury trial demand and the defendant failed to uh, to object. And so we ended up going with the jury trial. So sometimes, you know, a even if you do have a jury trial waiver, we will always demand a jury trial regardless and then put it on the other side to to object. Because if they don't object, then they waive their they waive that waiver basically. Sure. Right. So we always try to go for a jury trial. When you do have a bench trial, um, the biggest consideration is that you know you have to now realize who your trier of fact is, who's deciding your case, who's deciding your facts, and that's the judge, you know, obviously. And so that face time with the judge is that so is that much more important in advance of a hearing, whether it be on a on an injunction hearing or or on a or on a, like a, a bench trial. Um, that that face time before and kind of getting the issues before the court, you know, not not in a frivolous way, but where you have the opportunity in the case management conference, um, in pretrial briefing or pre bench trial briefing, um, in if there's discovery motions that have merit. Those are the instances where, you know, conditioning the judge and getting before the judge and kind of previewing the case and, and what the issues are can really help, uh, you know, at the end of the day when the judge has, you know, some judges will have non-jury bench trial periods that I've seen. I think in South right. Florida, there were a couple that had that. Other times you get kind of unlucky and you may get, you know, day one will be uh, on this day. And then a month later, you'll have the second day of the non-jury trial. And so sometimes you may have a three-day non-jury trial spread out over two months, which oh, is wow. obviously not ideal. It's it's like trying to have a, a phone call summary judgment hearing. Like it, you can imagine, no matter how smart the judge is, they're going to have that 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 lap that gap in time. They're going to you know, naturally, role, you know, exactly. You could have the smartest judge in, in the Southern District of Florida, and they're just naturally going to you know forget some stuff. So that's why it's important to make sure you do, you know, that pretrial briefing, that bench briefing is really critical because you want to make sure you've laid out everything clearly and concisely so that the judge, if you do have situations where you're not getting all that bench trial time together, the judge is going to be able to just pull up your brief and easily read where, what the issues are. And then of course, you know, we've had, I've had cases where, you know, you start day one and then, yeah, you might not go before the judge on day two or three for a few months. And so you got to make sure that you supplemented you know, you provided some supplemental briefing, you know, to the other side. A lot of attorneys won't. A lot of attorneys will, you know, not take the initiative to kind of refresh the court. And so it's an opportunity to give the court some supplemental briefing and just kind of remind them where they are, you know, give them a summary of the testimony that has been presented that, you know, if there were witnesses in that first day. So these are the kinds of things that you want to think about um, in the presentation. And you also just want to make sure that the actual presentation is even that much more memorable to the court. Um, and so that's why it's important that, you know, if you just have a straight one day bench trial, you know, judges generally don't want the flavor when it comes to presentation, examination, you know, look, if you've got a bad witness that's going up there and you're going to cross them, you know, make them look bad. Absolutely. But they don't really, they're not going to, you and you'll see their face and you'll see their reaction. They don't need the big grandiose opening. Oftentimes they'll, they'll limit it. Um, now, if you're, if, if they sense you're a good public speaker, they'll likely just want to hear it anyway. I, I've noticed sometimes, you know, if you take the approach and you're kind of dry and, and, you know, when you start with these judges and you ask them, judge, do you want opening? They'll likely just say, just give me a brief opening. But if you, if you give them an opportunity to say and to see that this might be a, a good advocate, you know, coming up before them, then you'll get that opportunity. But, but generally speaking, they, they usually cut back on openings. They'll sometimes have written closings. Um, so that's why, you know, bench trials can be great because they can be cost effective, but you have to be able to really tailor 
your presentation based on the limitations you're going to have, which is, like I said, those time gaps and the fact that the judges, you know, you kind of have to make your presentation tailor to that specific judge. And so that, that pre-trial FaceTime and understanding what the judge likes, what the judge doesn't like is critical. Because you, you, you've been before judges, I'm sure, Jordan and John, where, you know, you might, you go before the hearing and you think you've got a slam dunk motion and the judge, you know, you go there and the judge just says, you know, go on, you know, present your argument. And then you get to the end and they had no questions for you. You have no idea how they're going to rule. You could have, you know, you could just flip a coin as to how stoic they are. And so sometimes, you know, you have to, you know, if that's the case, you have to, you know, adjust accordingly. But if it's a judge who likes, you know, likes a little, a little animation, likes a little color in the argument and then, and in the presentation, certainly, you know, take advantage of that and use that to your, to your, uh, to your advantage. Yeah, I, I think that knowing your audience is, is an important thing. And I've actually never, when you talked about, I was sitting here when you were talking about written closings. Oh, yeah, they're there. Yeah. That, that to me, because the problem is, is I, you know, some people write out their closings. I mean, look, different trial lawyers say different things. They're like, write out your closing six months before trial, mm-hmm. all this. And, yeah. I, and I'm like, you know, closings to me is such a fluid process because I don't know what evidence is coming in yet. I don't yeah. know what's going to play out, what's my important things until closing and so the idea of writing a closing i don't think i don't think in my last you know i think i've tried what 25 trial now i haven't written a closing in i mean do i have a general outline of what i want to do and you know yes and is it building my powerpoint presentation is that kind of like my writing my closing yes mm-hmm. you know if i had to present that to the judge and you guys do a lot of what like findings of law and conclusions of fact or no findings of law, conclusions of law excuse me yeah submit those and you do those before I guess and after so but I've seen you know so I think some people get afraid of bench trials mm-hmm. uh, and I've seen some of the big trial lawyers out for instance out in California I mean they had a judge give 23 million dollars on a case well, you know and it was a they did the presentation he did you know the judge actually had questions yeah. like during their closing and opening of questions they had in their mind that they were answered and you know so I think that judges want to do the right thing and to your point, if you present it well and you're a good advocate, they want to hear from you. They're going to want to hear from mm-hmm. you. So, so I'll give you just a piggyback on that. We so with the bench trials. Yeah, so typically, yeah, following the bench trial, court will want it. You know, written, you know, opinions of fact or conclusions of law and, and findings of fact. We had a case, and in, 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 you know, it's, and it is, you know, because people do, you know, as a plaintiff's attorney, you generally stay away from federal. You know, I, federal court's not my first go to. I don't, I don't wake up and say, oh, let me file this in federal court. I'd much prefer to be. I prefer state court. That's kind of the way I learn. That's what I prefer. Uh, but you know, when you do have, you know, you are in federal court, obviously things are a little bit more serious. I mean, that's just that's the way I think they kind of hammer it in law school and in practice. Um, things are a little bit more serious. You've got tighter deadlines, um, and sometimes people, attorneys and practitioners, just think, okay, well, then the judges are just less less fun and they're more serious. But you know, we had a bench trial before Judge uh, Cannon. It was that trademark case. Um, we had we got summary judgment on liability. We got summary judgment on attorney's fees. So we were going into this bench trial just on damages, and we already had you know a substantial attorney's fees award in our favor. We already established liability, and so the question was presenting the case in a way that was persuasive on damages. And our damages were for disgorgement. So basically they had set up these these fake websites and the law provided, it was this, it's a very unforgiving mechanism under the trademark law, but it provides for disgorgement in favor of the trademark holder. And so what we have to do as a trademark holder is just put forth all the sales the infringer had during the infringing period. And then it's the burden of the infringer to show what sales were not related to the infringement. 
And so with that, it's, it's, an equ- it's equitable, it's a bench trial, it's disgorgement. And so the court has to basically come up with a number based on the evidence presented that's you know what's ultimately going to be fair in light of it. And so what's unique about it is you don't have to have any actual damages. And so our client didn't have, we couldn't prove a single loss of customer or anything. So, but we needed to present this case in a way that was exciting and, 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 and flavorful and not just about a case where, hey, judge, so technically they, they violated the statute, even though we can't show actual damages, we want you to give us substantial disgorgement. So please, so we had to make sure we showed how much these guys on the other side hated our clients. And so when we were presenting them before the court, we were pulling up text messages, emails that they had sent internally um, that we got in production where they were basically implying that they wanted to kill our clients because they had a feud with our clients. And so all this bad karma, I won't say it all on the podcast, but they wanted to, I mean, horrible, horrible things they were putting in writing and text messages that we got back through forensic, you know, through forensic searches. And then the court, so as the court seeing this, this is turning from just a simple, well, a technical violation of a trademark law to a, yeah, this was a scheme by these guys. They planned this for months. They purchased these registrations. They want, you know, this was only one prong in a multi-pronged attack on, on my client. And so the court ultimately, even though we had no actual damages, the court awarded us a seven-figure disgorgement award. And See, so we but that, ended up- but that story tells me something, which is that we, and I, I'm guilty of this, like probably more than most. I want to talk about trial as often as I can do it with anybody that wants to do it with me. But the truth is every trial is just the end product of meaningful discovery. And if you can't you know, propound discovery well and force the other yeah. side to comply and get at what the true evidence is, you end up hamstringing yourself when you go to trial because- Probably if you and your colleagues hadn't done a good job in discovery, you wouldn't have had those messages. And it reminds me of a case John and I handled. It was was a tragic case no matter what, Mm -hmm. but it was a car crash where one of the person, you know, the patriarch of the family died. The adult son was pretty badly injured orthopedically. Tragic case anyway. Mm -hmm. We would have done well. We kept digging and digging because something just stuck in my head. Like this crash makes no sense. It happened on Christmas Day. Why was this kid even on the road? Why did he blow a light? Nobody else was out there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we kept digging. We forensically examined his cell phone. Turns up he was looking up prostitutes while he was driving on Christmas Day. Oh. That case went from tragic to the insurer stepping in and paying yeah. policy limits to make it go away. And it made a significant impact for the family that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah, um, that's a great talk, outcome, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to discovery? Because, you know, John and I, you commented on this earlier, we're contingency-based. So we want to be as effective but as efficient as possible yeah. with our time. Whereas you don't necessarily, efficiency is always going to be something that's celebrated, but it's not maybe the main driver. So what's your approach to discovery? So we t- we take, I don't want to call it a team approach, but we take a multi, you know, we'll have several people look at this because we don't want to send, you know, every time you send discovery, you lose a substantial amount of time. You not only lose 30 days in the response, but you also have to account for extensions. And we don't, we want to go to trial as quickly as possible. We want to get, because if we don't get a trial order and put a pro- trial date, then we don't have that additional pressure on the other side. And so- when you have tight discovery periods, we don't like to just, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, oh, just send it out. And if, if they, we don't get back what we're looking for, we'll just send another request. But that's all time that we end up losing. And so we don't want to go and ask the court, A, we, we, our approach is to almost never us affirmatively ask for extensions on discovery. I mean, we'll grant them to the other side, but we don't want to be in front of the court, you know, telling the court, hey, judge, we're ready to go to trial. And then the other side says, well, judge, you know, they've asked for like eight extensions on discovery. So they're clearly not, you know, not ready. So 
that's that's number one. When we're preparing discovery, uh, we always really want to make sure that we've you know we've looked at it, we've thought about it, and I don't mean spending a week you know sitting around deliberating, but making sure that you know. And we use the general the same definitions and instructions across all our cases firm wide. So you know these are tested. We've been before multiple judges and multiple. Are there, let me ask you: Are there standard form rods for commercial disputes? Like in Florida, as you know, in the, in no, the appendices to the rules of procedure, yeah. there's some Florida Supreme Court approved ones. No, you get to do your own. You have to, you know, craft your own. You can obviously model after the basic ones, you know, who prepared these and made witnesses and, and the like. Uh, but we try to avoid sending the generic, who are your expert witnesses going to, you know, the, the five days after the lawsuit started, because you know what they're going to respond. And right. so we always try to, you know, we, we take, you know, we don't necessarily, depending on the case, you know, we're not going to go out and send 70 different questions for the sake of sending 70 requests for production. But generally, you know, within and our experience has been, you know, you, you never really need more than 20 or 30 in the entire case to get what you need to get what the other side has to prove and, and or what the other side is going to try to rely on to defend. And that's and that's pretty much the approach as far as, you know, how we how we go about it. We always try to make sure we get everything in native format, um, absolutely, or with load files so that we can put it into our own uh, third party vendor so that we can run searches, you know, organize it accordingly. You know, if, if we have a case where we know there's going to be a lot of emails, you know, obviously we don't want PDFs because that's just, you know, we can't organize it. We don't, you know, there's not going to be, you know, we're not going to know who might have been carbon copied or BCC'd on it. And so we try to make sure and we put that in all of our requests, you know, give us the native document, native format, you know, load files all this, that, and the other, so that we can efficiently look at it and review it. Because we'll get cases, you know, on the commercial side, you get a big firm on the other side, and they want to just dump you with 10,000 pages of documents, 15, whatever it might be. And that takes a lot of time. And so it's important to make sure that, you know, your requests are, you know, you're asking for the native production, you're complying with the rules, they have an obligation to, to provide it in that format. And so that you're, you know, you're getting it back in a way that you can not spend days and days, if not weeks, going through their production to find. And it, it, that's, and it's typically the way it is. Three or four good emails are buried in ten thousand. Right. And that's just the way. That's just the way the defense works. Oftentimes. Do you have any experience? Well, I'm sure you have some experience, but I mean, how extensive are you being forced to do binding ADR, like mediations and arbitrations, as opposed to going to trial? So, like for us. We get a trial date and every trial order says you got to at least go to mediation first. So we're just used to it. But we can always impasse and go to trial. Very rarely are we dealing with a tort case with some mandatory arbitration. Mm -hmm. For you, can you kind of explain how common it is and if, you know, what your approach to those are? It's, it's, it's so it's not that common. Uh, my colleagues, though, had a case. It was before Judge Acharte down in, in Miami and it was a, you know, insurance company breached a, a title policy and it, it would cost the, you know, the client was seeking about $2 million as a result of this breach um, or after their failure to pay. So to save you the, the all the facts and the long explanation. So it's before Acharte, he ordered it to non-binding arbitration. I think that was the first time in five years of, of doing commercial litigation, I'd ever seen a case, a commercial claim actually get referred to non-binding arbitration. So I, my colleagues were handling it. They went before, um, Judge Reyes, you know, mediator Judge Reyes it ruled in our, I think he ruled in our favor um, and ended up settling in our favor. Uh, but that was the first time that I think I had seen it. So it's, it's, it, it's not that common for the non-binding arbitration. It, it, you know, I think, and I think even Judge Acharte was kind of, you know, might've been something that he didn't typically refer to. Oh, it's a but tool, it tool to be, belt. I mean, technically yeah. every judge could send any kind of case to NBA, uh, NBA and, um, when they do, our firm actually we we have a constitutional challenge to that for only because there's a fee shifting mechanism tied. Correct. Up. Yeah. If you if you don't if you don't accept it, correct. Yeah. 
so that was the that was the first time. I mean, that was the first time. Otherwise, you know, you have your standard mediation requirements. And I think the big thing that you know, one other point, one point that I haven't touched upon, but I think it kind of goes towards something that you know, George, you know, you know, you and I talked about or maybe commented on LinkedIn a few a few months ago was that you know when you have if your if your claim you know if you have a commercial claim and it gets picked up by insurance counsel something that i've seen and i you know we go against a lot of the same big you know insurance defense firms in florida too and some there's you know one firm in particular i won't say who they are but it doesn't matter what the claim is if it goes to them that it's just like exponentially harder to litigate and it's because they just that the attorneys that get assigned to it it's not it's not it's out of their wheelhouse and so it may be like the one claim that they have among like 70 other slip and fall cases. And mm-hmm. so, and then with commercial claims, it's just, you know, you can't, you know, with, if you have a straight negligence claim, you know, the negligence law. And so the only time you're really going to come up with research issues, or if you've got like subsequent tort fees or issues, concurrent, you know, causation issues, expert issues, like that's where your research is going to be in a negligence. Like nobody's, re- nobody, you know, how often do you ever come across a motion to dismiss on, on the elements in a, in a negligence case? It's, I mean, I don't think I ever, ever. yeah, yeah. I filed one motion to dismiss as an insurance defense attorney, but it was on a commercial claim and we won regardless. But point is you just don't waste, you know, the defendants don't, but on the commercial side, not only you see these kind of frivolous motions to dismiss because they think, Oh, well maybe there's, it's a little bit different. So maybe there is a chance on a motion to dismiss. You'll get just, you'll get five times as many affirmative defenses that don't even make sense. Uh, We almost always deal with them because it's, you know, you, you can get, you can get them dealt with in a quick hearing. Um, uh, what else? And then I think, but I think the biggest thing is you get in, impediments to to settlement because the carriers, the claims examiners that are assigned, or if it's a TPA, they don't typically deal with the types of claims you might be bringing. Um, with the, the only exception is going to be when you have like a, a construction defect, you know, carrier, and they've got a, a CD examiner who kind of deals with those types of claims regularly. But if you have just like a fraud claim, a tortious interference claim, some breach of contract, and it gets picked up by insurance. They yeah, typically have general liability adjuster's desk. Or yeah, right? they they are they generally don't understand the substantive law, so they're not, and and then oftentimes the attorneys don't either, and so they kind of get so it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. They you know they kind of think that they've got great defenses when they really don't. I mean, we had this case. I mean, just an obvious breach of contract. Our client had been fired, and they and the contract provided that they couldn't you couldn't take the the employees that we had trained to work on your site. So they fire us and then go and hire all of our people. And so we've lost all this money we had spent in training these people when we were going to just reassign them to another facility. And so we're like, hey, you know, we're talking to the carrier and settlement, multiple settlements. And it's just like they think that they're just they're they're bulletproof. There's just no way. And the law that they're being you know, advised on is just the wrong law. And so we end up going to, you know, we're at jury instruction time, charge conference. And they had previously pled like 10 affirmative defenses. So we're looking at jury instructions. We've got ours ready and they don't have a single instruction on, on an affirmative defense they want to put forward. So we're like, wow. So all of all that time we fought and denied and all this time we dealt with, even if it was just a couple of responses to pleadings and stuff, like you still asserted all these defenses. We had to operate under the assumption you were going to board all these defenses. And now here we are with jury instructions and you haven't even bothered to write any of them up. And so now they're all gone. And so some, so John, we're not the only ones who are frustrated by, um, I'll say bizarre last, defense tactics. No, yeah. Last, we all deal with them, you know, just in a different yeah. context, but I mean, you know, they try to deny, delay, don't pay, you know, I mean, I think yeah. that's a universal approach to many aspects of the law, you know, at least from the defense side. Can I ask yeah, you a question good. about how you got into yeah, yeah. this? Cause this is like, for me, it's, it's always a unique question or it's always a unique answer, obviously, because everybody's different. But for me, I went to law school 
as a second career. When I finally decided to do it, I had committed in my mind I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I thought criminal defense was the end-all, be-all. And I I found a natural migration to PI, thanks to John, because I'm still helping people. I'm still the underdog, et cetera. But when I was in law school, nobody talked about PI. Plaintiff for defense, really. I mean, I knew insurance defense clerk opportunities, but it wasn't talked about. It was all either clerkships or like big commercial defense firms. How did you find your way, like from a passion standpoint, to doing the plaintiff side of commercial litigation? So I, so I start. I started with my first firm out of law school, and and I think you're right. I think a lot of law school, and I think, and it's something that I've also kind of commented on too. I think you know, you go to law school. If you go to any 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 larger law school, you kind of get push and I think condition that oh the best job is going to be at the biggest firm like you want to go to big law and, and that's not the case you know you don't you know with the hours and, and then the ability to generate business and, and kind of have make yourself it's you, you know it's a give it's a huge give and take so me personally I just you know in law school I naturally found this firm where I was first working at, uh, in doing insurance defense I worked with this phenomenal defense attorney long time a member um, I, you know plaintiff attorneys that I had spoken to in law school were like yeah Sonny's phenomenal he knows, you know, he can try anything. I mean, really top tier. And so I said, yeah, let me learn from him. So I worked for with uh, Sonny Myers for a few years, uh, had a great practice there. And then, you know, but I didn't like defending companies. I didn't like defending these injury claims, you know, even though the came, you know, and, and what I what I appreciated from where I worked was, look, we, you know, we didn't research frivolous defenses. Look, if it was a case where we were going to lose, I mean, we were certain to like advise the carrier accordingly and, and look, look, you don't want to take this to trial because you're going to get hit a lot harder. So you have an opportunity now. And so that was the approach that I always had with the cases. You know, I never wanted to say I was never this, let's just throw up roadblocks. I, you know, I would always want to have that honest conversation because I didn't want to fight and and I didn't like losing. I don't like losing. And so I didn't want to tell a carrier to keep, keep it, keep fighting a case when I knew ultimately we were going to have to pay. I didn't want to be on the losing side. And my boss didn't, he knew when to hold them and when to fold them. And so I kind of appreciated that. Uh, but I didn't like defending cases. I didn't like working for the big companies. It just wasn't for me. Um, I liked suing versus, you know, more so than being sued. And so I had an opportunity to work with this great commercial litigator, uh, Glenn Waldman, um, and got to, you know, he was a big, you know, another big Avoda member, had a lot of first year trial experience. And I learned a lot with him as well. Got to try several bench trials. And I just kind of naturally fell in when I was with him. It was, you know, he was mainly plaintiff plaintiff, uh, you know, he leaned more plaintiff side as far as commercial claims. And so that's kind of just the practice that I kind of picked up on. He kind of discouraged me uh, from big law as well and about all the control and, you know, the ability to develop business and generate your own claims and, and also just do, do plaintiff side because generally on the, on the big, the bigger, the bigger, the firm, the harder it is to bring in a, a plaintiff case, you know, even if it's a commercial case, right. because you're going to be suing somebody and you're likely going to run into some conflict because some guy in a satellite office, 500 miles away, spoke to that company four years ago and therefore you can't now sue them. And so that's, those are the kind of things that kind of shifted me towards a plaintiff side to focus on the commercial and business stuff was just the ability to help people. And, 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 it, and like I said, and like I've kind of hinted on that the typical client that I have is someone who's been defrauded, been wronged or otherwise been injured by, by the, by some business or some other uh, individual. And what's the best way? I mean, you're in Tampa, What's so like, can you just talk about the listeners out there might be interested? I maybe even need your help. Like what's your geographical scope of reach and how, how, like, what's the best way of getting in contact with you? So we focus, we, I mean, we focus throughout this, without the country, without throughout the country. I've litigated everywhere from Las Vegas to Monroe County. I mean, currently I have clients in Santa Rosa County, Florida, and all the way to Monroe County, which is where this trial is going to happen next month. Um, and we've, we've taken on cases in Georgia. I have a, I have a legal malpractice case that we're currently litigating in the Northern district of Georgia on the plaintiff side. 
Uh, but you know, we have a, a you know a, a regional reach. Uh, but we focus we focus mainly within the state of Florida. Uh, but for certain cases, you know, where it's, where it makes sense and we can partner with the right firm, we'll, we'll go outside to the, you know, to the, uh, Southeast region. Awesome. Um, I feel like we got to do this again, man. I, I enjoyed it. I, I yeah, I think, I think so. I think there's certainly more, more areas that we can kind of focus on and, and I feel more kind of threads we can kind of unravel and, and kind of help each other with, you know, things that, things that I've seen. And, and I, I talk to a lot of plaintiff's attorneys that I, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends that I went to law school with are plaintiff's attorneys. And so I'm always picking their brain, like, Hey, what are you seeing lately with exam, with claims examiners? What are you seeing? Like, what are, what are the responses you're getting? And funny enough, one of the things that I, my buddy was telling me was that now with the new, you know, with the shift towards modified comparative fault, um, he's now seeing a lot more pushback from carriers saying, well, we think your client might've been 52 53 right. 54 whatever it might be so whereas like you might have been able to get an early conversation going he's now starting to see these kind of like you know carriers you know taking you know just copying the language from the new uh from the new bill yeah i'm gonna i mean justin's listening he's gonna take a note i, th- I mean we're definitely gonna check back in and um, you wouldn't be the first recurring guest but i think you've got a lot of value to add a lot of interesting perspective to share and i appreciate it John and I can only offer what we know and we don't know what people yeah. you know. And um, it doesn't hurt that, that you're a cane. So we know you're, we know you're <laughs> top, top of the shelf. Um, with that being said, John, unless you have anything else, I see you're wearing a tie today, which means you must have a hearing somewhere. So something important. Yeah. Um, time for business. I mean, I've already had hearing depot and I got another account to call and hearing coming up. that got set. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening to this uh, episode of the on justice podcast and give a special shout out to Sean McCleary for joining us today, taking time out of his busy schedule. So for those of you that want to find Sean, he's very active on LinkedIn. Just look him up. He's the one and only, at least that I can tell. Otherwise, you can go to his website, which is the firm website of Bartlett Loeb, and his email is on there, you know, contact information, or just go to the Florida Bar website. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the listeners who are staying in. And if you have any feedback or comments and you want to hear more the next time Sean's on, just drop some comments. Justin will take notes, and we'll make sure to cover it next time. So that's it for now. Take care. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free. The truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunity.